Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the Climate Report for Thursday, September 8th. The Climate Report broadcasts and podcasts on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. Please note all Climate Report shows are archived at KVMR's podcast page for re-listening and sharing. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. Well, there is so much news and information out there. With the heat extremes and all of the different weather-related events happening around the world, as well as blackouts, EV mandates, and just a swirl of misinformation out there, for today's Climate Report, we're going to try to blast through as many headlines as we can to give folks a sense of what's happening out there. But first, we're going to start with a couple of longer pieces before we blast through. First is going to be on Pakistan, because we want to highlight what's happening in Pakistan to bring up a difference between the suffering in poor countries and giving them loans versus giving them reparations. Pakistan is an example of a country that is bearing the worst brunt of the early effects of climate change, However, they as a country are responsible for less than 1% of the greenhouse gas emissions to date. What ends up happening is rich countries are ending up costing poor countries a lot of money due to the failure of policies that have created this crisis. Poor countries are asking for reparations. Rich countries would rather give them loans. That way they can actually turn a profit and make money off of the suffering and the crisis that the rich countries already created, leaving poor countries in debt. Poor countries are claiming that's not fair, that they aren't looking to be in debt or have someone make a profit off of the problems that they didn't create. They are owed money and damages. And this was spoken recently by a very powerful woman in Pakistan, Sherry Raymond. She is the country's climate change minister, and she insists that rich polluters must pay their due as the country is hit by devastating floods. This is an article in The Guardian that says rich nations owe reparations to countries facing climate disaster, says the Pakistan minister. Rich polluting countries, she says, which are predominantly to blame for the dystopian climate breakdown, have broken their promises to reduce emissions and help developing countries adapt to global heating. This is, again, according to Pakistan's Minister for Climate Change, who said that reparations were long overdue. Now, a third of Pakistan is under flood water after weeks of unprecedented monsoon rains battered the country, which only weeks earlier, had been suffering from a serious drought. Now, to frame this for the listeners, what it means to have your country underwater, we've talked in the past about news reports and science that are predicting that the very first populated nation islands will be submerged in underwater and disappear from maps as early as 2040. Now, there are already Pacific islands that are being submerged with rising sea levels, but they haven't been populated. So Kiribati, for example, is one of the first countries expected to completely disappear by 2040. Let's think about that for just a moment. That is 18 years away. Let's imagine that science said that the entire United States from north to south, east to west, from valley to mountain, every single object, person, building, spot of land in the United States was predicted in 18 short years 
to be completely and totally submerged and lost underwater. That means a child born today, when they turned 18 and became an adult, there would be no United States. Imagine how we might act as a country if that was our prognosis, that in 18 years, unless we change now fast enough and deep enough and at the scale required, our entire country would go away. That's what's happening with countries. That is their prognosis. And in most cases, they did nothing or almost nothing to create the conditions that are making this happen. So this is what is actually now happening in Pakistan. One third of the country is underwater just after being in a complete drought. In an interview with The Guardian, the climate minister for Pakistan, Sherry Raymond, again said that global emissions targets and reparations must be reconsidered given the accelerated and relentless nature of climate catastrophes hitting countries such as Pakistan. Sherry Raymond is 61. She has quite a pedigree. She is a former journalist. She is a former senator and a diplomat. She previously served as Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S. So she knows a bit about what she's talking about. Here's a quote from her. She says, global warming is the existential crisis facing the world. And Pakistan is ground zero. We have contributed less than 1% to greenhouse gas emissions. We all know that the pledges made in multilateral international forums have not been fulfilled. She continued, there is so much loss and damage with so little reparations to countries that contributed so little to the world's carbon footprint that obviously the bargain made between the global north and global south is not working. We need to be pressing very hard for a reset of the targets because climate change is accelerating much faster than predicted on the ground. That much is clear. Well, the extent of Pakistan's flood damage is unprecedented. For those that haven't heard or paid attention, because sadly in American media, if it is a country suffering that is mostly brown people or poor people, they don't get as much attention as citizenry and populations in countries that are more white and more rich. So here's what's happening in Pakistan. An area the size of the state of Colorado is completely inundated. More than 200 bridges and 3,000 miles of telecommunication lines have collapsed or damaged. At least 33 million people have been affected, and that's a figure expected to rise after authorities complete their damage surveys. In one district alone, which produces half of the country's food, the Sindh district, they produce half of the country's food for Pakistan, 90% of crops are ruined. Entire villages and agricultural fields have been swept away. And the main culprit is unprecedented, relentless torrential rain, with some towns receiving 500 to 700% more rainfall than normal in August. Still, there are large swaths of land in Pakistan that are under 8 to 10 feet of water, just standing water, making it extremely difficult to drop rations or to put up tents or to do anything. The Pakistan Navy is actively carrying out rescue missions in normally extremely dry, arid desert areas where boats have never even been seen before. According to Raymond, she said the whole area looks like an ocean with no horizon. Nothing like this has ever been seen before. I wince when I hear people say these are natural disasters. This is very much the age of the Anthropocene 
These are man-made disasters. Many have fled inundated rural areas looking for food and shelter in nearby cities, which are ill-equipped to cope, and it's unclear when or if they'll ever be able to go back. The total number of people remaining stranded in remote areas waiting to be rescued remains unknown, and the water will take months to drain, and despite a brief pause in the downfall, more heavy rain is forecast for mid-September. Pakistan is one of the most vulnerable countries in the world to global heating, and the current catastrophic floods come after four consecutive heat waves. Pakistan has more than 7,200 glaciers. That is more than anywhere on the planet outside of the North and South Pole. That's how important Pakistan is and the water banks they have. More than 7,200 glaciers, more than anywhere outside of our two poles. And all of them are melting much faster and earlier due to rising temperatures, adding water to rivers already swollen by rainfall. Expect to hear more and more about the demand from poor nations suffering from rich nations in action, asking for not just loans and debt and profiting off of the problem, but reparations, which rich Western countries have so far refused to even consider. Let's do a quick round of climate headlines before we dip into another little bit longer piece. It says that global fossil fuel subsidies almost doubled last year in analysis fines. That's even though fossil fuel companies are the most profitable companies in the history of the planet and are raking in profits triple with what they were a year ago and complaints about other forms of subsidies to individuals such as college programs, electric vehicles, solar panels, global fossil fuel subsidies doubled last year. Um, representing a a roadblock to tackling the climate crisis. Despite the huge profits of fossil fuel companies, the subsidies soared as governments sought to shield their citizens from surging energy prices. Most of the subsidies were used to reduce the price paid by consumers. This largely benefits wealthier households as they use the most energy rather than targeting those on low income. Other science news, major sea level rise caused by a melting of the Greenland ice cap is now inevitable. It's expected that a a foot of sea level rise is now going to be guaranteed as a result of the melting of the Greenland ice cap, scientists have found. Even if fossil fuel burning that is driving the climate crisis were to end overnight, that is what uh, they're saying is the low end of uh, prediction of what we should be expecting and that likely it will be higher than that. But they've said it's going to happen. Uh, The Greenland ice cap melting is now inevitable and they've analyzed the best they can what that is going to do. It's going to add almost a foot to sea levels around the world. In response to the crisis and climate scientists who feel like their words are not being heard, which is true to a large extent, most media, advertising, politicians, and businesses um, aren't telling the story that climate scientists are telling. And climate scientists are now calling on their colleagues to protest the crisis with civil disobedience. It's actually in a scientific research article in the Nature Climate Change Journal that argues nonviolent direct action taken by experts is actually effective. A group of leading scientists has, has argued that Scientists should commit acts of civil disobedience to show the public how seriously they regard the threat posed by the climate crisis. They said the widespread notion that simply 
providing a sober presentation of evidence by an honest scientist to those who have power will accomplish the best interests of population is not a neutral perspective. It is instead conveniently unthreatening to the status quo and often rather naive. In addition to documenting the climate crisis in every detail, the report says we are obliged to consider how we might act in new ways to bring about a necessary and urgent transformation. In the meantime, we have long since arrived at the point at which civil disobedience by scientists has become justified. The article conceded that by taking political action, scientists will invite the criticism that they have abandoned their impartiality. However, they added that readers must ask themselves whether science's traditional modes of research and communication are provoking an appropriate response from decision makers that meets the enormity of the crisis. American media has largely been silent about it, but there have been uh, several actions where climate scientists have been gluing their hands to the glass of facades of buildings in the UK and in Europe. Hasn't happened much here, although it did happen in Los Angeles when several climate scientists did the same. It wasn't really talked about much. They're saying this needs to happen more. In other science news headlines, they say the world is on the brink of five disastrous climate tipping points related to melting ice sheets, stopping ocean currents, melting permafrost, and that we may have passed the point of irreversible change. Now, there are about 16 different major tipping points on the planet that science has been looking at. And as we get hotter and hotter, we get closer to hitting them. Tipping point means that we'll get past a point where we can reverse what we've done. And what they do say is that the good news is individual and social tipping points can also accelerate to meet this. So that's been a constant theme in science is that as humans sit around and watch the climate crisis and nature accelerate what it does and reach tipping points, instead of sitting here slack-jawed, humans should also be accelerating their action and reaching their own tipping points. Then in the same vein, this is a very interesting um, new research, a poll that shows that U.S. voters favor climate action, yet we assume that most of our fellow Americans don't. This has been a constant theme we've talked about in research. The majority of Americans are either alarmed or concerned about the climate. However, the majority of Americans never talk about it because they think no one else cares. So even though the majority, two-thirds of Americans, are concerned and want to do something, no one is talking about it. So this was enlightening. It says part of the key to collective action may be to overcome the false social reality that makes us assume no one else cares about the climate. It says America is polarized, but a new study has revealed one issue on which the nation is surprisingly united, mitigating climate change. Yet, Americans themselves underestimate our own population's concern for the state of the climate, largely because of the failure of news media, advertising, business, and politicians. Turns out there is a lot of support for major climate mitigation policies. By a whopping 80 to 90%, we are underestimating what our fellow Americans think, according to researchers from Boston College, Princeton, and Indiana University. In a peer-reviewed article, researchers shared the results of a nationwide survey of 6,000 Americans, for which participants were asked to estimate in their mind the percentage of Americans who were at least somewhat concerned about climate change. Participants also estimated the percentage of Americans that they thought support specific climate policies. Regardless of political orientation, 
education level, age, race, income, media preferences, no matter how you sliced it, every single type of American. The study found that all Americans vastly underestimate how much their compatriots care about climate change and support green policies. One of the study's authors told Scientific American, climate policy and concern about climate change are much more prevalent than you think. And virtually everyone in the country seems to greatly underestimate how popular climate policy is and to continue to underestimate how concerned their fellow Americans are about climate change. So despite polls by Yale's program on climate change communication showing that a supermajority of Americans, 66 to 80% of Americans support climate policies, we estimate that only about 40% of the public are actually interested. So 80% of us, up to 80% support climate policies. But when asked, so how much of the other Americans do you think, we chop it in half and assume that only a minority of people are concerned. Republicans proved especially pessimistic about how much people care about climate change, even though half of Republicans support pro-climate policies. In truth, the issue of securing a livable future appears to enjoy bipartisan support. It turns out that the feeling of being alienated in one's concern for the environment is as widespread as it is unfounded. In fact, this study captures a phenomenon known as pluralistic ignorance. That's a shared misconception of the thoughts and behaviors of others. In this case, pluralistic ignorance results in what the authors call a false social reality, in which many of us perceive and think that others aren't willing to take action on the climate. And we overestimate how many Americans are indifferent to or denial of climate change. Ending the misconception that most Americans don't care about climate change and truly appreciating how popular eco-friendly policies are could give such measures valuable momentum and support. Moreover, understanding that there's nothing fringe about caring about the environment can help people feel more confident discussing their green policies and viewpoints with their peers. The perception that people are unified in a collective desire for pro-climate action is a powerful thing. It becomes easier to take action when we know that people actually support collective solutions. The reassurance that we are all on the same side when it comes to reducing the effects of climate change could also help us manage climate anxiety and feel more optimistic about the future. Young people are especially struggling with being optimistic. Last year, a university survey of more than 10,000 teens and young adults across 10 countries found that 75% of them believe the future is, quote, frightening with researchers linking youth psychological distress to government inaction on climate change. Have no misconceptions about it. They say mitigating climate change will require a collective effort. Now let's run through some state-based, United States, state-based, uh, one-at-a-time quick headlines. We're going to start with West Virginia, just as a, as a quick profile to compare West Virginia, where Senator Joe Manchin has his uh, coal empire. In West Virginia, coal accounts for 88% of the state's electricity generation. Solar provides less than one-tenth of 1%. So just to underscore, we're going to run through uh, various news headlines for all these different states in America to underscore that we aren't one united nation. You can be in California where on some days we're 100% solar-powered and green-powered. 
without any coal, or it can be in West Virginia, where it's still almost 90% coal and almost no solar. Well, speaking of coal, when people are uh, saying that renewable energy isn't going to function well because we don't have, uh, we have more extreme events, more droughts means less hydropower, um, it turns out that fossil fuels are also being challenged as drought is threatening coal plant operations and electricity across the West. Not a lot of people know about it, but coal plants and most typical power plants just boil water all day long in order to keep the lights on. Matter of fact, there is one of the largest plants in uh, Wyoming sucks up 16 million gallons of water every single day. Every day, 16 million gallons using that to power more than a million homes across western six western states. But there's a problem that looms. The water is being piped to it from the Green River that comes from the rapidly shrinking Colorado River. So what they're discovering is coal plants are also unable to begin operating at full maximum capacity because there's just not enough water anymore. So even coal plants are having to shut down. Well, in brighter spots, there are places like Utah and Idaho near to Wyoming. There is a utility company there, Rocky Mountain Power, who is going big on solar and home battery programs. They actually have over 2,000 customers who have solar power connected to the grid as well as batteries that the utility company can turn off and on in order to bring power to the grid. So it's something that has been talked about a lot here in California. It's also happening in red states, Utah and Idaho. Some other states, though, are very much antagonistic towards renewable energy. Ten Ohio counties have banned large-scale wind and solar after a state law passed that allows counties to pass bans on large renewable energy systems. So in Ohio, after that state law is passed, a total of 10 counties have now banned the ability to site large wind and solar power projects in their area. Pretty wacky. Let's talk about all of the EV and battery plants that are opening up in order to take care of the U.S. EV market. That's been a complaint by some people saying, well, EVs are great, but the batteries are made in China. They're not really hearing about the massive expansions that are happening in state after state, company after company. Here are some headlines, for example, in um, Kansas and Oklahoma, Panasonic is now planning their second $4 billion U.S. EV battery plant. They already have a $4 billion Kansas battery plan for EVs. The company is now going to open one in Oklahoma for its second location. The Kansas factory is expected to create up to 4,000 manufacturing jobs. So not just in one state, but two states, Panasonic is going to be making EV batteries, Kansas, Oklahoma. Well, then Toyota is also doing the same. They're heading to North Carolina. Toyota is investing $2.5 billion to expand battery manufacturing in North Carolina. So that's Kansas, Oklahoma, North Carolina. And then Bosch is investing $200 million to build fuel cells for electric trucks in South Carolina. So red state after red state is getting major manufacturer after major manufacturer announcing plans to open multi-billion dollar factories to produce vehicles, either EV vehicles or batteries for the EVs. And then, of course, the U.S. is working hard to make charging cars almost as painless as pumping gas as part of 
the uh, new Infl- Inflation Reduction Act, there is going to be $5 billion spent to build 500,000 chargers all across the country. And they're intended to make sure that they are fast chargers and not just slow chargers. Level three fast chargers can top off a car's battery in 15 to 45 minutes, depending on the vehicle. So some of the key challenges are that it's going to have to be a patchwork across all of the states working together. And um, But just know that there are EV um, factories popping up and EV charging stations planned to be built all across the country ASAP. In other fresh news, there is a new charging station that has been approved to work with the Nissan LEAF electric vehicles in the U.S. that allows the Nissan LEAF to push power back to the grid as well as draw it out. There have been a lot of really unfortunate memes and misinformation on social media. People have had fun um, pretending that California was misguided when it just announced that it's going to be restricting the sales of gas vehicles next decade because this week we're having power issues. It turns out that EVs generally don't use power from the hours of 4 to 9 p.m., which is when we're having our crunch. EV rate plans generally discourage charging then because that's the highest rate. So EV owners already avoid those hours. No one was told to not drive your car or charge your car. Matter of fact, the more EVs we have, the more we can stabilize the grid by having them connected and pushing power back. Then also talking about the different sections and areas of the United States and how we're different and whether you're talking about one region or another, data centers for the internet are fueling climate change, but it kind of depends on where they are located. Do you have a data center near you? Are you aware of how bad it might be for your surroundings and the environment? Well, it turns out in America, the best areas to have data centers are on the West Coast, according to a new study by Cirrus Nexus, a cloud management platform. The study was conducted during a week in June. California and the Northwest are the cleanest data center areas. The Midwest is considered the dirtiest because its main sources of energy were coal and natural gas. And a big state like Texas is somewhere in the middle because they use natural gas and wind along with a mix of solar. In other technological news, Ford Motors reportedly is working on a mystery electric truck that is not an F-150 Lightning. This new EV will likely go on sale in 2025. They scored a big win with their F-150 Lightning. It's an electric vehicle that sells for less than $40,000, can tow more than five tons, and has enough battery backup to run a home off-grid for a week or two. Then there's also a new EV rideshare company called Earth Rides, uh, invented by a young woman who's a Nashville native that actually moved to Los Angeles. And now she's created an all-EV rideshare company called Earth Rides. So check that out if that is something that you're interested in doing. And then also let's talk about quickly running through some California headlines. I want to remind listeners that there have been several studies that have shown that we can have 100% renewable energy by 2035 in California, and we can handle an increase of 60% more power needed to run EVs. People shouldn't be worried. We are headed in the right direction. We certainly weren't prepared for bad extreme weather like this, but the science is showing that plunging forward with EVs and renewable energy will actually make the grid cheaper, better, more resilient, and help lessen these extreme events. 
There are more efforts to develop micro utilities with batteries and solar. Um, there are more studies being done on the state level. There is also um, the other headlines worth talking about is there's a new community solar bill. We're waiting to see if Governor Newsom will sign it before the end of the month. This would allow renters and people that don't have good sites to be able to access solar. Um, in another headline, we're revisiting solar canals. We've talked about covering our canals and aqueducts in California with solar. It actually reduces evaporation of the water, cools the solar panels, and makes it easier to not take up valuable land. And the first project is going to be uh, starting to be constructed down in Turlock this fall. Then following up also on the EV mandate, 17 states are looking at following in our shoes. And um, we will have all of the latest headlines also listed on our social media page. So again, you're listening to the Climate Report here on KVMR-FM Nevada City every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb.